Hello, my magical friends. My name's Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 136th time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. We have some news to catch up on and things I've watched, and then we'll get to today's topic. So let's get started. In the news, we have some new series announcements and new confirmed release dates. So first, Magical Destroyers, which we had previously known would come out sometime in 2023, was officially announced to be coming out in April specifically. So it does look like this will be a one core show, most likely. Next, a new comic called My Wife Might Be a Magical Girl by Mashimo Aikawa debuted on Kadokawa's webcomic site, Comic New Type. It features a young adult couple, the husband a super fan of magical girls, but especially Miracle Miku, and the wife, the aforementioned former magical girl, Miku. She decides she has to return to the magical girl fighting space. And that's where the story begins. Finally, Netflix has dropped a new magical girl series for the pre-K crowd called Princess Power. According to their own press release, it's a celebration of girls, friendship, and expression. Princess Power follows four young princesses from the major fruit kingdoms, Kira Kiwi, Bea Blueberry, Rita Raspberry, and Penny Pineapple, as they help their fellow fruitizens and try to make the world a better place. Along the way, they learn to embrace their differences and become stronger together. So it looks pretty cute, a little, you know, some silly kitty fun, but, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, you should give it a try if you have uh, Netflix. So with that, let's get into what I've been watching. Now, you think with a long break like this that I would have watched a whole bunch of shows, and I have been watching a few things, but I haven't finished anything. So the only thing I have to talk about this week is Delicious Party Pre-Cure, which of course very excitingly is near the end of the series things are getting down to the final showdown and we'll be getting the first public update about Hirogaru Sky Precure next Sunday so look out for that news update next week it's been very very fun very uh, interesting to see the twists and turns things that we thought were really obvious but in hindsight maybe not so much so there were a lot of interesting things happening and more things to look forward to coming up. So I am definitely really, really excited for where the series has gone so far and where it's ending up. So since that's all I have finished this week, let's move on to today's topic. So today we are going back to the 70s again, looking at a very interesting, very unique series for the genre in general, but also something to consider as far as a historical precedent and so on. We definitely get into the history quite a lot in the episode, but before we get started here, so we are going to be talking about Hanonoko Lunlun or Flower Child Lunlun. And I am very excited to have a returning guest today. Uh, Jack Harrison Quintana was on for the Poitrine episode. 
and was a lot of fun to talk to. He is one of those folks who is more into the classical magical girls, and by classical we mean within the first 30 years of the genre. So, <laughs> but yeah, so this series was really interesting to check out. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, that is just a small little memo, a little update, I suppose. When we recorded this episode, I had not watched the quote-unquote movie, which was a movie. It did air in the theaters, but it is only 15 minutes long and still includes the ending and opening of the show. So it is more like a 10-minute little short, but it is basically a short episode where Lun Lun goes to Japan and it's the first time that she like really leaves to go on a long trip. And it's a very interesting short thing that really mostly is focusing on and is, I think, related to the main story in that um, there's this idea of like kind of longing for the past, uh, for what Japan used to be, and definitely very anti-modernity, uh, anti-pollution uh, and stuff like that. But I think it's also very interesting in that when she transforms in this episode, she does dress up like a geisha. And it's the only time that she dresses up and her hair changes color because it goes to that traditional black as if she were Japanese. So I thought that was an interesting thing to point out, something to keep in mind as we jump into the rest of the chat. But before we do, I do need to give warnings as always. Um, so before you check out this chat or before you try watching the show for yourself, please keep in mind that there are instances of racial stereotypes or ethnic stereotypes. There's also a romance, uh, implied romance, at least one-sided, if not both sides, maybe, with Lun Lun and a character who is a bit too old for her. So just keep that in mind. Um, otherwise, please enjoy this chat with Jack Harrison Kinhana about Hananoko Lun Lun. here to talk about Hanonoko Lunlun or Lunlun the Flower Angel or maybe even Lulu the Flower Angel depending on where you were in the world when you watched this uh, from 1979 and I'm delighted to have back a returning guest. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Jack Harrison Quintana. I use he him his and I'm so excited to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely awesome to have you back. You were on to talk about Poitrine a while back. And uh, yeah, now we're here to talk about Lun Lun. And I'm very excited to get to this series because even for its time, it's a very unique one. Mm. But before we get into that, what have you been enjoying in the genre since your last time on the podcast? Well, if people remember my personal story last time, I'm a big Sailor Moon fan that is probably the biggest fandom of my whole life. And I recently, or sort of in the months since we recorded the Poitrine episode, I found another podcast where they watch every episode of the 90s Sailor Moon cartoon and review every single episode. And that has really sort of sustained and excited me for the last few months getting to go back into all of those individual <laughs> episodes including all the filler and hear about each villain it's called sailor business it's two 
white guys from the U.S. talking about Sailor Moon, which is not necessarily a description of a podcast that I would leap at, but it's pretty fun. <laughs> fair, fair. It depends. Some You just have to be the right person. and Yeah, but that sounds very interesting. Definitely worth checking out. I'll, I'll find a link to it for people to, to click on over if they want to listen as well. So have you just been basically kind of revisiting Sailor Moon through the eyes of this podcast? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of particular episodes that I either really, really loved or that I barely remember, which is also kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, I listen to the episode of them reviewing it and then go back and watch the actual episode, Mm -hmm. which is really fun. Sure. I love those kinds of podcasts. Generally, I I would love to do a podcast like that myself. Definitely not for Magical Girls. So that was something on my mind once upon a time before I came to the conclusion to do this one. But yeah, like the podcast that can actually go through each and every episode and talk about them. It's it's so much fun to listen to. And I imagine it would be really fun to make as well. (laughs) Yeah, what would you do it for? Not for Magical Girls, you said? I, I mean, I would be down to do it for a Magical Girl series as well, but... But not every episode of every Magical Girl show ever made? That was my original idea, I, that, and I was like, oh no, this is not sustainable. No, but I would listen, though. <laughs> if there was a way to do it, like, um, I think the one thing is that those kinds of podcasts really need two hosts at the least Mm. to watch together to have people who are sharing in the complete experience of watching a series but honestly actually something we're going to talk about today i would love to do it for world masterpiece theater if i had to choose Mm. one particular Mm -hmm. kind of franchise i think that would be super fun to go through because that's kind of one of my obsessions is like cross-country adaptations and stuff like that and yeah i just uh think that particular franchise had such a huge significance in Japan and isn't necessarily well known outside of Japan. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it would be really cool to to go into in that depth. But honestly, I just generally am a, I'm very obsessed with adaptations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I have so many, so many podcast ideas just around that topic in particular. Mm. But enough about that. So I guess, have you like watched any other new things or revisited any other things in recent months? Well, not really. I've been pretty focused on Loon Loon. It's been really fun to have this excuse to go really deep on this series mm-hmm. and get into all the thoughts that Loon Loon could give me. And then having Sailor Moon going at the same time kind of was enough. I have to say, and I'm sure that you have experienced this putting out these episodes, you know, I spent so much time really focusing on Loon Loon that now I'm excited to watch other things after this. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. And as much as I've really, truly enjoyed going as deep as I can on this show, you know, it gets to a point where you're like, I'm excited to just watch stuff that I'm not thinking that deeply about for a little while after this. Yes, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's fun to shut off your brain sometimes, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. I understand what you mean. I really put a lot of effort into scheduling out my watching so that I don't get too tired of anything and also that I put stuff that like I don't need to watch in my schedule, which sounds yes. really dorky, but like it's important. <laughs> no, I admire your viewing scheduling. I, you know, follow it on social media obviously, and I feel like you bring a discipline to your hobbies that I also strive for. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time coming. It wasn't always like this, but yeah. 
Oh, I keep a schedule book. It's nice. It's it feels nice to check off a box. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely recommend other people do the same. So getting into this series, so um, Hananoko Lunlun is a very unique series in a lot of ways. For one, it is the kind of return back to the toy animation Majoko franchise line, which had mm. stopped in 1975 at the end of Majoko Megujan, which we have talked about in a recent episode. Mm. And, you know, like there was this, you know, kind of break and it wasn't with absolutely nothing because um, what happened was they decided to focus on a kind of new thing. So as I mentioned earlier, World Masterpiece Theater is something that like really, really took off at this time. It is, you know, this Japanese produced animated series that is for each season. It's a different a different work of fiction, but generally not Japanese fiction. So mm-hmm. some ones that were very popular are Heidi, Girl of the Alps, and uh, around this time was um, Anne of Green Gables. These kinds of stories of a girl who was exploring the world and discovering herself were so popular that Toy decided to try to make their own. And, you know, there was a comic as well. And that's mm. how Candy Candy was born. And so Candy Candy was, uh, if you're aware of like Japanese girls animation, this was a mm-hmm. huge hit. It's also mm-hmm. nearly impossible to get now because mm-hmm. of legal reasons. I was able to get my hands on it through buying a, a copy from another country. And I'm very excited that I will get to watch that at some point. <laughs> mm. It is one of those shows that, Candy is not magical. It's not a magical girl show in that way, but it's one of those shows that is almost as important to the canon of magical girls as, may, I mean, maybe more important than some actual magical girl shows right? in its influence. <laughs> yeah. So because of like when it aired and the fact that it was like between these two uh, magical shows, like you will see a lot of these like official things from Toy of showing a bunch of magical girls. And then Candy. Oh. It's really interesting to see how, like, that, like, she's just naturally associated with them, even though she doesn't have any magic of her own. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So I can't speak to the content of Candy Candy yet because I haven't watched it, but it was a huge hit. And, like, she's an American girl, and the series is, like, her, like, going through a lot of life stuff, but also, um, like, traveling in different places and stuff. So... At the end of that series, Toy decided to make something similar, but a little different. And they decided to bring back the magic again. So mm-hmm. they created Loon Loon. So, you know, this origin is, you know, it's a lot of stuff, but it's important for context reasons. Um, Loon Loon is just so different from everything else that we had gotten before, mm-hmm. which were like all these really witchy series and stuff. Mm-hmm. Hanunoko Loon Loon is about, of course, Loon Loon Flower, who is a French girl, despite her name who on her 12th birthday is uh, approached by a talking dog and a talking cat who tell her that they are looking for basically a flower child, someone who is of the fairy world by blood. Um, However much blood, we don't know, but like partially fairy. And Mm -hmm. she will be tasked with finding the flower of seven colors or rainbow flower is probably the phrase I will use for the majority of this chat. Um, But yeah, in order to find that, like, she has to travel around because they don't know where it is, but it is up to her to find it. Meanwhile, she is being tailed by uh, a few different characters. Mostly we have her kind of main rival, Toganisha, who is another fairy who wants to get the flower for herself so that she can take the crown. 
and her lackey Yaboki, who is this uh, Tanuki, who's a very interesting character, and mm-hmm. uh, always causing trouble for her. Also, we have this other character, Serge, who is a photographer who loves to take photos of flowers and seems to just kind of, for the most part, is not usually around. But when he shows up, he's usually gone right away. His main task in each episode is, um, as Lunlun goes throughout uh, Europe, first through France and then just travels through the rest of Europe and even hitting North Africa for a few episodes, she... um, is always interacting with people and like there's basically each episode you're getting this kind of like life lesson and stuff you're getting a a moment in time with the stories of these like locals and you know whoever she talks to she affects so much that Serge gives them some seeds or bulbs or what have you for a flower whose language Mm -hmm. represents their experience with Lunlun. It's very interesting and also very fun because you get to learn about flower language each episode. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a fun little adventure about a girl who was traveling very real places throughout Europe trying to find this magic flower. And mm-hmm. of course, you can't be a magical girl without a magic item. So she does have a flower key, which she uses to reflect back the power of the flowers. And I, don't, I keep trying to avoid flower power because this is a 70s show, oh but God, it's kind yeah. of... <laughs> kind That's of funny. I hadn't it. thought of that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And so the reflection of the power back onto her will change her outfit to something as she needs. And that is also an interesting thing because then she will take on different disguises or wear a fancy dress when she wants to and stuff like that. So it's very cute. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth saying that the flowers are all real. Just yes. like all of the places she's going are real, the flowers are all real. So you do sort of see and learn a little bit about the different flowers. Now, do you think that the language of flowers was made up by Toei, or is that <laughs> referencing some pre-existing ideas about these flowers? I believe it's real flower language here. To be honest, I did not look it up. And what does that mean? <laughs> real flower language? Like, because, okay, different cultures have different ideas of what yeah. flowers mean. But, you know, they're, uh, goodness... I feel like I should probably put in some research here that I did not do about this particular well, topic. Need, but but you think that <laughs> this some of this stuff is brought from Japanese cultural ideas of flowers or European ideas of flowers? Oh, that's a good question. I would say European because, for one thing, a lot of these flowers are not native to Japan. Okay. So yep, there wouldn't be a need for a flower language for a flower that isn't native to a place. So mm. I think that's usually where they come from and... I think that the language is borrowed as well, because that's certainly true for some other flowers that I know of. And yeah, this is something that I don't know a lot about. You would think that there would be more, um, <laughs> more like magical girls that really incorporate this stuff. Because yeah, well, flowers in general are important, mm-hmm. but they don't usually get into species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only other series that I know of that actually goes into the flower language and makes that an important part of the series is a uh, Heartcatch Precure. Mm. where like people's flower hearts are very specific flowers and stuff and there's like meaning behind it and, and so on um but yeah so and, and it's interesting because like Lunlun herself also is aware of the flower language um mm-hmm. even though she doesn't necessarily interact with it a lot herself but that's a very good question uh yeah so what is your history with this series 
Okay, so, you know, last time I was on, we were talking about Poitrine, and that was a series that I have loved for a really long time, you know, since college. And in a way, Loon Loon is the opposite. So in 2020, when we all suddenly were locked in our homes, I started a Magical Girl project to watch at least five episodes of every Magical Girl series that predated Sailor Moon, so before 1991, mostly sort of Showa-era series that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, I set out just to watch basically a one arc or like a little bit of many different shows, but of course that led to me discovering how much I loved some of these shows that I hadn't been as familiar with before. And one of those that I got sort of most deeply sucked in by was Loon Loon. You know, I had seen images of her and I knew that it there was sort of flowers in Europe. Those would have been <laughs> the only two, uh, you know, key terms I could have come up with about the series. But I really fell for her as a character. Um, and really, I fell for this theme of geography and just how real the places that she was going were. So when I was doing my really short initial watch, I watched the first episode and then I jumped forward to, I think, episode eight um, or somewhere around there when she first is crossing over into Spain and they're really giving some information about different spots in Spain. And I was like, wow, you know, we're really in um, Spain. We're really in Mallorca. This is really interesting. And as a person who has been interested in Japanese media for a long time, um, and, and also being a person who isn't Asian, I have often been kind of interested in the parts of Japanese media where you see glimpses of what Japanese people were thinking about Europe at different times. And may sometimes seeing how the way that they depicted Europe might be different than the way they depict China or other parts of the world. And that has always been really interesting to me. So from that angle, too, I was just like, this is so rich. Like, I really want to dive in. Um, so that's how I got here. What about you? <laughs> Personally, you watched it because of me. But what did you know about it before? Hmm. I knew that like people who watched it really liked it. Mm. That's basically all I knew about it. Like, I just don't know why. It's not like it didn't occur to me to watch because obviously my goal and part of the reason why I have this podcast is eventually to try to watch basically every magical girl out there. So cool. <laughs> I can't even remember like what I might have thought of about the series, but like, I didn't know any of the context. I didn't know that like it was about travel I didn't even know she was French I knew basically nothing except that it was just another Majoko series mm. so I, I kind of understood this to be a series about a girl who has a magic item as opposed to like a girl who is of magic like a Sally or Megu mm. or what have you but that's all I knew really <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well it's interesting because I I think compared to some of Loon Loon's peers at the time, I don't think that she's as remembered as like Megu or Sally or Akko, but mm -hmm. I do see her around. And actually, I really very recently went to um, Iwate for the first time in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. 
and we went to the local history museum for the prefecture and there was a loon loon bowl oh like a rice bowl or you know a bowl just a bowl Mm -hmm. in the showa era section of the museum and of course i had been watching loon loon every day preparing for our recording and when i saw it i was like okay this is an example of like she's around a little She's just not around as much as like a Sailor Moon or a sort of um, certain magical girls who you see more often. Hmm. I think that part of it is that she's not really remembered as being a magical girl as much because her story Mm. is not as much about that. So like, you know, one of my my students who is a a slightly older woman, her daughter is my age. um, We talk about magical girls all the time Mm. anyone who follows me on twitter i'm talking about precure grandma because i got her into precure Mm. we like talk about these 70 shows when i'm watching them and like she was so excited to uh, have even heard me mention loon loon and we like we talked about that we talk about like the rose of versailles which came out the same year and of Mm. course that's set in france as well on this like actually historical and stuff there's that and then um, candy candy came out before then and so she was telling me about like you know, for her, these shows were like really big for her. And she watched some of the other stuff. Like she also has fond memories of Cutie Honey. But huh. <laughs> like she really strongly remembers like these three and how like she watched these and she wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes, oh, um, wow. uh-huh. which is very interesting. Yeah. These shows kind of opened up her world in a way. It was to the point that she had forgotten that Loon Loon uses magic which it seems Mm. kind of silly like you know of course it feels like you know oh this is obviously a show that you're gonna have an item for you have to sell a toy or whatever and there are you know toys for loon loon i I would definitely love to get my hands on a flower key that would be pretty cool yeah me too (laughs) but like it feels like not as as uh, important for the grand scheme of the story the story is not really about that it's about her making new experiences um and like meeting new people and like just learning about the world in a way that is generally impossible. It's quite funny because like, you know, she starts off the series, she's 12 years old and it's like, she is an orphan. She lives with her, her grandparents and they Mm -hmm. see her off on this journey because they're the only other people that don't freak out when a talking cat and dog come into town. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. everyone just like seems to be pretty, okay with a 12 year old girl going out into the world which is really interesting and mm-hmm. also um part of the the series is sometimes she goes somewhere not because she's well she's always on her quest but sometimes she just needs to get a job real quick because she needs money and that yes. like you know it's that's also kind of an important thing or a situation of the week happens because she is in the middle of a job or something and so there's like this weird, interesting balance of like realistic stuff with this magical aspect, because you do see her use her key every episode, and there's always some sort of shenanigans with Yaboki and um, and Toganisha. But like generally speaking, it's a lot less magical. And the other thing is like the fairy world is mentioned, and we see fairies in both the opening and ending credits for the show. But, like, they never show up until the end of the series. Right. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem to be the point. Right. I think that's right. And, you know, I one thing that I was trying to do research on that I wasn't able to find anything really solid about, but I do think that this show sold fewer toys than, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, than they hoped, probably, 
And also, I think, fewer than some other Magical Girl shows, which it's possible. I have hypothesized that that might be partially why we don't see it um, lifted up now quite as much. Because hmm. there's not as much money to be made by Toei. But, you know, who knows? Sure. I mean, there's a point where the nostalgia factor is strong enough that it doesn't matter, I think. Because they didn't have toys for all the Majoko the same way. In fact... When I was doing my research on the toys, hmm. there's only one version of the flower key that's available. So it probably wasn't always, um, which hmm. is interesting. But mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like toy sales were not as big a factor yet. Like, hmm. they're always important because capitalism, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't think it's as strong as like what we expect from a Magical Girl series today, where... We expect to see, okay, it's been how many episodes a new item is going to show up yes. because we need to sell more toys, you know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So getting into, like, some uh, specific episodes and, and story arcs and things. So the first six episodes, she's still in France. She's exploring France, which is interesting, but not necessarily super exciting. And like you said, I think it's really when, you know, in episode seven, she goes to Basque country and then in episode eight, she actually gets to Spain. And that's when the the adventure really starts. And Mm -hmm. just for the record, you know, we're in this kind of fictional version of Europe where everyone speaks Japanese to each other. And so there's no like pretending of what's it called, like any language barriers. There's no problem with that in the series, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, a fun thing to just kind of throw out the window. It's like, it's fine. We don't really need to worry about that. So, you know, all of her, her experiences and stuff are, are kind of not necessarily realistic in that way, but Mm -hmm. certainly interesting in that she gets to learn a lot of like new cultural things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in the earliest episodes when she's still in France, I think there's a way in which if she's our point of view character, she doesn't have to learn about the culture because it's still the culture she was raised in. And then as soon as she's with the Basque or she's in Spain, that becomes a pretty major part of each episode, which really excites me. Mm -hmm. You know, that is part of what drew me to the series. And I think that there's a few things here that we can identify as coming from the um, World Masterpiece Theater series. So uh, the fact that she's an orphan is uh, true also in some of the female-centered series from there. Mm -hmm. And then the element of travel, right? So, like, there's some travel in Heidi, there's also travel in Perrine, and we see it again here. I also wonder if there's a little bit of... Like, that is part of the fantasy of Europe, even though it's not necessarily presented as, like, your railing, just traveling around Europe by train and seeing different countries. But there is that idea that it's easier to do that in Europe than in some parts of the world. And in the first episode, you do see her on kind of a European-style train. Mm -hmm. So travel is sort of a central theme and i think it does come even in candy candy right it's not exactly travel but definitely like movement of people Mm -hmm. i think that the orphan thing is an interesting point because i think that like kind of loki gives this girl more freedom yes (laughs) like i think that's true yeah like just because she doesn't have parents and for the record they do actually go into that like in her feelings about her being an orphan do get touched upon in the series in a way that i think is really interesting but like the lack of parents does give her the freedom to do more. Like she doesn't have the constraints 
in the same level that she would have if her parents were around to be like, uh, you can't just go run off. You have to go to like school and stuff. Right, <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting because she loneliness is a part of her challenge, right? Oh, like yeah. it's not one of these travel adventures where the plucky heroine doesn't care and doesn't, you know, misses her grandparents only occasionally and only in one line. Like she does struggle with being away from her grandparents and away from a home, which I appreciate as, as one touch of realism for sure. Yeah. I do think that they, they do go to that a lot. There's an earlier episode where she almost goes home, Mm -hmm. but what's very interesting is like, as far as the, the rival goes, like Toganisha's, uh, kind of forced to be reckoned with she has this like pollen storm attack that she does that like tornadoes her away if she wants to get rid of Lunlun real quick but for the most part her main thing is to make sure that Lunlun is doing what she's supposed to in finding this flower so that she can steal it for herself but she can't just go after the flower herself that would be too much work um yeah it's very interesting to see like how she approaches things because Whenever Lunlun is like feeling homesick or is very, very busy with a problem that has nothing to do with finding the flower, then Togodisha slash Yaboki are both there to be like, hey, you got to stick back to the task. And it goes so far as to like, you know, kidnapping her mascot characters mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's It can get a little surprisingly violent and stuff, you know, all things considered. Yeah, the rivals don't fight a lot. But when they even sort of posture towards fighting with each other, it's pretty exciting. And her magic is maybe even cooler than Loon Loon's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know that she can also use the flower key because there's an early episode where she does uh, steal it for herself and, um, you know, gets to use it. But Yaboki is like, as being a tanuki, he has his own disguises and stuff. And there's like a regular thing where he is disguising himself in a way and for some reason, Lunlun can never be like, hey, I know who you are. You're trying to trick everyone. Instead, it always has to be like him accidentally revealing his tail and everyone going, right. oh my god, it's a tanuki. And again, you know, like uh, suspension of disbelief, everyone in right. Europe understands tanuki lore. <laughs> I do think that he's such a funny character in that way because it's like everything's European. They seem to be trying to not sort of have Japanese things creep in. Right. And then they were like, let's have a tanuki. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, I'm down. It's just like an interesting choice. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, again, it's because it's for a Japanese audience, I think. But I'm very curious as to how he was treated in the exports of this story. Because this was a very uh, popular, like... Oh, very, yeah. Like, in terms of export, it went to so many different countries and... Of course, her name changed from, like, Lulu to Lydia, etc., like, a bunch of other names, you know, because Lulu doesn't mean anything. Well, I'll tell you that I have also watched the French dub. Oh, okay. And in terms of uh, Yabuki, they don't really address it. They sort of just, you know, act like he has a transformation power and a raccoon tail for no reason and that you're just (laughs) supposed to accept that like any other magical element of the show which i think makes sense right sure yeah it's not maybe what i want as a viewer who's deeply (laughs) interested in the cultural context but i can see that maybe most europeans don't want or need that and it obviously didn't hamper their enjoyment because 
this was dubbed into so many European languages. And you can see why, you know, it makes sense to me that it would appeal to them. I wish that it had come to the U.S. Mm. Or more so. The the educational value was there. What's interesting is a past guest of the podcast was able to access this while growing up in the U.S. Mm. In some sort of official capacity because her mother worked at a, at a video rental shop and she got it from there. I don't know like if it was in English or not exactly like what the what that situation was, but it was like kind of available. And I know that in um in two thousand nine there was a um a kind of edit done of the series to turn it into two films, mm-hmm. which were called Lulu and the Flower Girl and Lulu and the Flower Girl Two. So that's kind of Very interesting. Creative. Yeah. <laughs> I would kind of like to see how those edits are because it is a 50 episode series. So that's like a lot of stuff. So I, I wonder how it got, you know, pared down Chopped there. Chopped up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's like bad or anything, but it's it's no. curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the animal sidekicks? Ah, you know, <laughs> so like we haven't actually fully introduced them, but I, I did say they were a cat and a dog. Um, the mm-hmm. cat is named Kato, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. And then the dog is named Nuvo, mm-hmm. which is an interesting choice because he sounds like an old man. Mm-hmm. At first, I wasn't really sure about him because he was like kind of, he had like heart eyes for Lunlun and stuff. Like I made notes about that the first episode. And I was like, I don't want this to be like a creepy old man situation because that's certainly mm-hmm. like been a thing before. But it turns out he seems to be okay, but he's just kind of like a sad old guy. Or whatever. That's kind of the impression I got of him throughout the show. Keto was fine, though there was something surprising about Keto, which we'll get to after the spoiler point. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That shocked me, and I didn't realize I made assumptions I shouldn't have about him. <laughs> but yeah, like just generally speaking, you know, it was a lot of like they're they're kind of fun together, and you know, they're very hyper focused on the the task at hand, obviously, like because it, it's like their mission or whatever. And, you know, as soon as they find it, it's like, oh, then we can all go back to the the flower land and everything. So that would be very exciting. But because of that, they get very impatient when Lulun is like experiencing human emotions. Um, So Mm -hmm. that can be a little frustrating sometimes. But I think it works because it's a kid's show. And it's like, you know, sometimes you're going to meet people like that who don't really have the same kind of level of empathy that you would hope for. And it certainly drives the plot forward, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they're not my favorite animal sidekicks in the Magical Girl canon, but I think they're fine. Yeah. They're not, like, bad. Just, yeah, no, no, fine. they're not bad. <laughs> yeah. I think Keto is pretty cute. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Are there any other particular things you want to discuss before we get to the mid-season point? Because, like, basically the first part... We go through a bunch of Spain after France and then getting to Germany and stuff. So uh, is there anything, like in particular you'd like to discuss from those adventures? <laughs> hmm. No, I would say I sort of enjoy each location. I think we're going to talk about the racial politics with potentially controversial topics mm-hmm. towards the end. And so, of course, there's some in each place. I thought it was kind of interesting when they get to the Netherlands mm-hmm. because that is a country that we associate with flowers very very much right partially because of tulips in general i guess but also because mm-hmm. of the like 
historical run on tulips that became like an economic bubble that we learned about in economic history. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting to see how modern they showed it to be, like with the computer systems and the bidding on different bundles of flowers that would be sent to different parts of Europe. Like, Mm. I could easily have imagined them creating this in the 70s, but then setting it in a vague past that's not quite so technologically up to date um but they Mm. don't which is kind of interesting that's a good thing actually there was a long time in this watching that i could not figure out when the story was supposed to be set (laughs) yeah yeah, (laughs) because it's so vague (laughs) especially because a lot of the places seem to be like not like like set back or anything like that but just like she's out in the country a lot so right there's a lot of stuff that's like not really being explored in terms of technology so it just was very mysterious (laughs) well and the one thing that i think it points to is i would say that the whole show is pretty positive about europe and pretty like look europe is cool right but some parts of europe are cool because they're pastoral and there's natural beauty and then other parts of europe are cool because they're hyper modern and have industry which i think you see like in the netherlands and you know those are two very different ways to talk about a place Mm -hmm. Uh, two very different ways to be cool that could have kind of political implications right but oh for sure not bad just interesting yeah i think that's a it's a very good point and i do think that happens a lot like i hear people talk about how they like want to come to japan and go to the countryside and i'm like I mean, okay, you think people don't have smartphones there too? Like, I don't know. Right. The images that people have of like certain areas in any country they haven't been to is it's interesting to see what people cling on to and stuff. And certainly, I think it's definitely also very true for Europe, even today, Uh, like people uh, have the image of like, going to Europe and like, you know, working on a farm or something. I don't know. It's certainly there. bakery i feel like i'm periodically <laughs> in bakeries in japan and it's like oh you've styled this bakery as if it were some sort of pastoral french space mm-hmm. which is clearly evoking a france that i think exists but or or has existed but maybe not exactly the way that it manifests in the japanese imagination sure sure but yeah so definitely like you know these these are all things that are pretty common and we can get into detail about like some of the things that get super wrong because I think it's fair to say it's nothing is like gonna be perfect it's very difficult to do accurately but I think that in general the series you know it's very clear there was a there was research involved which is impressive for what Mm -hmm. they were trying to accomplish so I do think that it is worth commending them for that and is there a part of the world that she moves through in the first half that's like your favorite country that she goes to? Hmm. I mean, I don't feel very strongly about it because I myself have never been to Europe. So mm, I don't have anything to, you know, compare it to, right? Like mm. I have my ideas based on like when I studied French and studied Italian. It's like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is what it looks like in my textbooks, but that's about it, you know? (laughs) And then, like, watching media from those countries can also give me some ideas, but generally it's like, this feels normal, I guess. Like, I didn't really feel any particularly strong way about the locations, Mm -hmm. I think. I I do think it was interesting. There was 
I believe the episode where she kind of like latches onto a uh, a boat captain who reminded her of her father. I, if I recall correctly, that man is supposed to be Japanese. And oh, huh. uh-huh. I thought that was really an interesting choice because like for the most part, we don't see any Japanese people in the series at all, except for the uh, quote unquote movie, movie, which is 15 minutes long, where she goes to Japan. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, it's just, uh, yeah, just like, there isn't really a lot of like looking at other parts of Asia or anything at all. It's pretty closed off into this one area. And I think that the locations that she goes to makes sense with that location in mind. If that, I don't know if I'm making sense there, but the situations don't feel like they're all very strongly connected to one place or another, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like there are certain small things that are kind of like, okay, this is because we're here. But for mm-hmm. the most part, not so much. Like, I think for me, one of the, the episodes that really stood out to me is definitely not involved with any particular place. But it's episode 22, which is um, the situation is she befriends someone whose job is to make forgeries of famous artworks. And uh-huh. that one was an interesting ending because she tried to prove that, like, this guy was actually a good person, even though he was on trial. And the judge said, okay, he's a good person, but he still did this stuff that's illegal. So we're going to put him in jail. (laughs) And so he like grows his flowers that he receives from Serge in prison, which is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think it's important to point out because like flowers are generally associated with, you know, femininity, which seems Mm -hmm. very clear. But Lulun isn't necessarily a very feminine girl. Like, when we mm-hmm. get introduced to her, she's wearing overalls. She's, like, literally rolling around in the mud. She's described as being a tomboy character, even though her main outfit is a dress, and she wears dresses a lot. She mm-hmm. does have her moments to do, like, more kind of, like, playing the prince role. And um, one time she even does jousting as a knight, which is pretty fun. And we definitely get examples of her, which we get in a lot of Magical Girl series. And we certainly, you and I talked about this with Poitrine a little bit. There are instances of using her magic in a way that transforms her into a kind of more masculine guise. And you can see that there's kind of this theme of like playing with gender and transformation, which Mm -hmm. can be fun. Yeah, for sure. There are a few times where her disguise is is made to be such that she is being read as, as a boy which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And she's pretty like, I mean, she's very feminine in some ways, you know, whatever that may mean. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, she's not. She's very headstrong. Um, she's not always listening to the people around her who are trying <laughs> to get her to focus on her mission. Mm-hmm. I like her a lot. Yeah. I definitely like the series because I like her. Yeah, I would say it's the same. She's a really great protagonist because like, if she feels almost like an in-between of what the earlier Majoko were like and then what we start to get more later on and then into like the fighting magical girls and stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. She's an interesting kind of uh, balance. Actually, speaking of that, I just remember because we were talking about like non-European ethnicities and stuff. I just remembered that there is one case of a Chinese character and it's like terrible. Yes, Yes, in episode 13. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to mention that before I forget. I guess with that, shall we get to the mid-season situation? So spoiler point? Yes, yes. So for anyone who has not watched yet, I think it's definitely super worth watching if you can get your hands on it. I would definitely like to see how it is treated in a dub. I think it probably would be fine to watch in a dub for this show because the majority of the important content is 
you know, based on real life. So what are they going to do? Like completely change <laughs> like stuff uh-huh. about like real places. Right. Right. Getting into the kind of like the mid season is uh, episode 24, which is called the, the miraculous flower key. So um, as he mentioned, like every episode at the end, we have been seeing this guy, Serge, we don't know what his deal is, but no matter where Lun Lun is, this guy also is, which could be read as a little creepy if Ludlud wasn't also wow, very yeah. interested in Serge. Um, mm. <laughs> so this is uh, an interesting test, right? Of like, mm, yeah, we'll get to that later. But um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. in this particular episode, we get the situation where um, they're all like kind of on an adventure together. So Serge is alongside Lunlun and her partners. And it's generally the case that whenever Lunlun is with another person, her partners, right? I keep wanting to say fairy partner, her animal partners, uh, Nouveau and Kato, are not really participating. They can't as much because they can't speak when they're around other people. There's like often mm-hmm. jokes about like, hey, that dog is talking. Woof. Right. <laughs> so uh, they're in the mountains and um, they get uh, trapped. And um, it ends up being the situation where Lunlun gets up to safety, but Serge's clearly about to die or he's about to fall into a river and it's very dangerous so which can i just say it's completely the situation they get into is ridiculous <laughs> and like this is a solvable problem and you're somehow making it worse uh-huh, in order uh-huh. to drive the plot forward but okay lumen is 12 so we have to remember that um <laughs> yes 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 well <laughs> my for me it's uh, the only thing is that she uh, doesn't seem to show as much sense in that moment as i feel like we see her in other episodes sure yeah showing but, but i but i agree 12 years old good, <laughs> good reality check yes so there happen to be some people nearby but not in speaking distance to them that she tries to get their attention with the flower key by using the kind of mirror aspect of it to kind of flash uh light at them and it doesn't Again, work. Ridiculous, but okay. <laughs> it doesn't work, unfortunately. But what ends up happening is that she slips and falls and the key breaks. And that light ends up getting the attention of the guys who then go and save Serge. While Lun Lun falls to her death in the river. Of course, it's terrifying. But uh, in this uh, very kind of trippy scene where she is unconscious in the water, a voice speaks to her saying that, you know, she has broken the flower key, but it's okay. She will get a new one. And this one, she has a magic phrase, which she didn't before. Uh-huh. And it would give her more power, but it will be a limited power, which I find very interesting. So now she has this flower key. And um, as I mentioned before with the toys, if you try to find the flower key toy, it's only this particular one. I don't know if the toy for the original flower key even exists. Which feels crazy. <laughs> right? It's like, can you, how do you have this show and not try to sell the original product? But I can't find it well, anywhere. Well, it seems like they would change the key at all to make you buy another toy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, why even yeah. have the design change then? But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, hard to say. Yeah, so they have a new thing, and now she has a phrase. She has a magic phrase she can use. So she says, Furedu, Furedu, to use the magic to transform her. And now, she can use the magic of flowers to um, take on specific jobs. So 
it's become a an Akotan situation, which is very interesting. Um, though I don't mm-hmm. think that this was the case in earlier Akko-chan. I think this is the case in later Akko-chan, where she has the time limit and actually gets the abilities of the job she takes on. So I think that's really interesting. I think that's right. Yeah, it sounds right. I haven't finished watching the original Akko-chan, but I know because I read the comic, the most recent reboot comic from like last year, that that's the mm-hmm. case in that particular iteration. So... Yeah, so sometime in between then, <laughs> Akko-chan got this new power, but it was not until after Loon Loon, so it's an interesting kind of thing to point out. But yeah, so now she can take on a job, but she has a time limit, like her flower key will start to blink when it's uh, time, and she becomes kind of useless after the key like power goes away. So that leads to some interesting situations, for sure. Things get really dangerous as she continues her journey throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, the other yeah. limitation that gets set at that time is like, if people find out then she'll just die, right? Yes. She will no longer be able to be uh, on this earth is the phrasing that's used. So it's implied <laughs> that if her secret is found out slash if the flower key is, is broken in any way, it would cost her her life. Yeah. In the French dub, it's even more explicit. Okay. Like they don't, they don't obfuscate about uh, <laughs> you can't be on this earth. It's like you will lose your mortal life. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, all right. It's a lot. That's a lot. Again, she is 12 years old. <laughs> she is navigating the world. She's doing that. So, yeah. So she now has a little bit more strength to her with this new ability. And again, therefore getting into a little bit more dangerous situations. There's an episode where she nearly crouches up. She's pain. Jesus now. <laughs> Well, she comes back to life, but uh-huh, anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's some really interesting situations, you know, now that she has this new uh, ability. And by the way, I, we haven't mentioned this, but we really need to, with regards to the flower itself and this quest, you would think, oh, I need to find this flower. I got to go ask around is a simple enough task. But uh, mm-hmm. there are several episodes where people say, oh, I know about the rainbow flower. Let's go on this quest. And she goes on the quest and the rainbow flower is actually the name of something that is not even a flower at all or is something else that is a flower, but is like not the kind of rainbow she's looking for. There are several episodes where a place has a quote unquote rainbow flower. That's actually caused by some sort of illusion of light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this poor girl has been on this quest for, for so long, you know, again, the show is 50 episodes long. So it's like a full year of, of stuff. She does, make it to her 13th birthday by the end of the show. It's incredible. Mm. So she she's like, again, traveling through through more parts of like Northern Europe. And then she comes back down through uh, Italy and into she ends up going to uh, Morocco and Egypt and then and Tunisia briefly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she makes it back to uh, Sicily and so on. So she goes through just so many different different places. And it's Again, really interesting where they choose to send her and how much of Europe she gets to see. And then the fact that she gets to go to North Africa at all for a few episodes is pretty uh, fascinating. Uh, yeah. So do you have any particular favorite you know, episodes or situations from the second half of the series? Well, you know, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but I do 
feel like the series starts to drag a tiny bit and then suddenly when she gets to North Africa for me it's like I perk way up (laughs) Um, and I've spent a lot of time in North Africa because of my job and it is this interesting thing where like we're seeing Europe Europe is clearly shown to be very very cool and then North Africa not shown in quite the same way right so do you want to talk about that? (laughs) Um, yeah, we can go ahead and talk about it now. Even the way that everything starts is really strange. When she first, like, sets off, like, she doesn't intend to go to Morocco. Episode 39 is the first of these uh, episodes where she she's in, at this point, she's actually in the UK. She's in mm-hmm. uh, London. And, by the way, they don't necessarily make London look very great either. That's true. Yeah, you know, she's in, like, this, like, poor area, and she gets robbed oh actually i do have to point out this is very funny because she's a french girl she like balances a baguette on her head in the Mm. beginning of this episode and then gets the baguette stolen and it's like girl what were you doing with this bread i don't understand but anyway so you know she got robbed and of course she's furious about it and when she tries to find the boy who did this you know she gets cornered by these very scary poor people who are the most diverse we've seen any area of any place so far. We see, you know, multiple, in particular, like multiple black characters here and just like other kinds of like question mark diversity. I don't know what the intention was with the artists. And, uh, you know, it's like very clear, like, oh, this is where the poor people are and they're dangerous and they're like causing trouble just for fun. They like take apart a car in like this kind of riotous way that's really weird and she runs off and ends up kind of accidentally finding the boy that that had robbed her of her bread and turns out that yeah he's from morocco he is uh he's amazig but uh in particular they they use the word uh, berber here which from my understanding is no good these days but mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. the exact context at the time of like who wouldn't would have said it was okay to use, but so I don't I don't know what research went into that, but in any case, we would say Amazigh these days. Well, and I know that you and I both talked to Amazigh people about some of this, and what was explained to me that I thought was interesting, although of course it doesn't really come up here, is that Berber is derived from the word barbarian, mm-hmm. and that is the source of the objection to that term, and and the term right. that people actually use for themselves is Amazigh. Right. Which is the indigenous people of Morocco and surrounding countries. Yeah. So, you know, again, yeah, it's, that's my understanding as well. So, but I, from my understanding as well, from what, uh, from the person I talked to, some people do from like within the group do use the term, oh, not sure. as like yep. the first like choice or whatever, but just to be understood and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, but in any case, right. uh, we, we do not like, condone the use of the word is what we're trying to get at right but in any case so you know we made this boy and um you know like this other family member of his uh and it's clear like he grew up in london but his parents were from morocco so that he wants to go back at some point and they do have tickets there is a police officer who is very very cruel to both of them and end up stealing the tickets away and so they have to get them back and there's like this whole uh you know chase scene and stuff and the older older gentleman ends up giving up because he is old and gives Lun Lun his ticket and says go with him to Morocco and I'm like 
why? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just met this French girl. I don't know why you're getting her involved in this stuff. Yeah, it was just, it didn't necessarily make sense to me, but that's how this trip starts, and she ends up going, you know, we get to uh, Casablanca by the next episode, and, and back to the boys' own hometown and everything. And there were some interesting situations here as far as, like, his experience. There was... I don't know if it was like the best place for the conversation, but it was certainly a conversation about the uh, the kind of connection between like the diaspora and the like the people mm. who stayed in the place, if that makes sense, yep. because of yep. the way they were kind of refusing to accept him because like, oh, well, your parents were here, but they're not here anymore. I know that used to be their house, but we can't accept you, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little complicated. Also, the the flower of this episode of episode 40 represents the footsteps of white people oh my god yeah that was a choice (laughs) it's like oh my god (laughs) i didn't know that was even a thing so um yeah that was that was interesting yeah you know it's a mixed bag Mm -hmm. you do get an explanation of ramadan here yes that's true which i thought was interesting i think Mm -hmm. that that was uh you know, edifying. But then on the other hand, you also see some art styles that I think would now be considered racist. You wouldn't necessarily see the lips drawn these ways now, I think. I would love to say that's not the case anymore, but that does still happen. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that's right. But at least I think we can, I I would say I disapprove, you know, I don't think it's sort of ideal. And the other guy is Kenyan, right? The boy Darif is Moroccan. And there's another guy like on the boat with them who's Kenyan. And Mm -hmm. for us assessing it now, I do think it's like, well, you get a little bit of explanation of some Islamic topics. You do get to see these places, which could easily have been invisibilized relative to Europe. On the other hand, the way they're depicted is as... A little bit dangerous, a little bit, like, scarier than mm-hmm. France, you know, let's say. Yeah. And a little bit racist. Yes, yes. Obviously, it's complicated because, like, in general, I would say I can't exactly vouch for the representation of pretty much anyone, but there is definitely a difference you can see between the way that even, because, of course, there are bad people throughout the European episodes as well. Yeah, but, like, they're true. treated very differently than in this situation, I feel. Like, there's definitely a different feeling to it um, that would make me comfortable. I, yeah, and again, with the art style, like, I think most people understand that drawing the, the lips in that fashion is, like, not okay. That being said, I believe it was uh, this year we had um, Licorice Recoil, which is a very, very popular series about uh, secret police girls or whatever Mm. there's a major character in that who was black and they drew him with those lips and it was like such a weird choice for a series that otherwise felt very you know like a modern and and so on that's interesting yeah most places have gotten the memo but not everyone has (laughs) basically and i do think this kind of begs us to bring up the question of ethnic minority representation in mainland europe prior to Mm -hmm. this and 
it's similar. Like, we do see some, which right. is cool. We mentioned the Basque episode, and I think the Basque people are definitely depicted sort of generally positively. You also see Roma people, yes. and I think that's little, you see a little more trafficking in Roma stereotypes. Yeah, and they do use the G word in, in that case as well. Yes. Yeah. Similar, right. Some. In the same way that we were saying, you know, they used the old word for Amazigh. They were hearing the old word for Roma people. Mm-hmm. And then the Chinese guy in episode 13 yeah. is another example where it's like, I didn't feel this way through the entire show, but it's hard not to feel like, oh, this show loves Europe and thinks <laughs> that white people with beautiful yellow hair are gorgeous. And right. then everyone else, mm, hard to yeah. say. It reminds me a little bit of in Candy Candy, they have Mexico as Mm. kind of like a threatening place Mm. in a similar way. Like she's at one point, Candy is accused of stealing and they're like, oh, as punishment, we're going to send you to Mexico. And for me as a Mexican-American, it's like, well, what? That sounds great. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, that seems. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that it's very unfortunate because that's certainly a place that we don't see a lot of in culture like especially in Japan i mean right. people know mexican food but no culture is summed up by their food you know that, that i didn't know that about candy candy but it's good to it's good to have that warning for anyone who's going to watch yeah it is a very unfortunate thing that like it's a less complex topic than you would think but also too complex to really get into depth in here i think right 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 but yeah, certainly it is It is a thing that is very clear from Japanese media in general. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah, and I think especially maybe when you see the comparison with the Chinese guy, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, the text seems to believe that Europe is cooler than non-Japanese parts of Asia or any of Africa. Like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that yeah. is not shocking in a way, but it does seem to be the case. Yeah, I should point out as well, um, because it's even true today that for a lot of Japanese people, they don't consider us a part of Asia at all. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, but we're on islands, and so we're separate, so we don't count as Asian. This this is the general idea. It's very interesting. That kind of Mm -hmm. like, when you say Asian, it has a different meaning in Japanese. I think that's true of Europe and the UK too, right? Like mm-hmm. The islands in general sometimes think of themselves as a little bit separate for better and for worse. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's actually a very good uh, point. Yeah, it's definitely very similar to how the UK feels about the rest of Europe. <laughs> but yeah, so let's see. The other thing that I think we can talk about now that we're past the spoiler point and in the back half of the series is the romance plot. Mm-hmm. So... What is your overall? I mean, obviously, there's a big age difference here. Yes. This was actually something that it didn't require like a lot of research, but it doesn't actually come up in the story itself is that uh, Serge is 17 years old. So, of course, that's a big gap between 17 and 12. Yes. There have been other other series with gaps of this size or similar and before and since, unfortunately. It's not ideal. So the romance plot, I want to get into more detail when we get to the finale, but at least from what Mm -hmm. we have so far, pre-finale-wise, what we see really is a boy that keeps showing up wherever this girl is, which really can freak you out. It's like, what's going on here? Why is he always around? 
like for me my my thing was oh my god this boy is a stalker like why uh-huh. is he in the same places it's not like he can't go to like i don't know other parts of europe and then the other thing is just like she is very clearly interested in him also i should point out from the very beginning the ending theme song shows the two of them on a heart so we know from the beginning yeah there's a suggestion of, of romance here but um from the the actual like contents of the show like she's like oh my god it's serge like he's so cute and he's so mysterious and by the end of the series we don't know anything about him other than he likes no. to take pictures yeah. of flowers we don't get his own surname until near the end which is flora which is sure fine sure <laughs> but he's just like such an interesting character for being kind of nothing like he's whatever right. lulun wants him to be um <laughs> i would say that for me that rescues the character a little bit. Oh, okay. Like, just, well, okay, just in the sense that even though you know as a viewer that you're supposed to understand that these two are kind of endgame in the narrative, right? it's not a show about their romance most of the time. That's true, And yeah. I think that's helpful. Like, mm-hmm. in a way, Serge is a narrator character who comes in and explains or you know gives the flower seeds and Mm -hmm. then you find out about the flowers right and it's not so central that they're like falling in love which i appreciate even though it's weird that then (laughs) we proceed towards the ending of the show right so i think what's very fascinating about it for me is like it's better that he's kind of a nothing burger than like if he had been an active character who like was maybe problematic or something in a more active way like I felt like, well, I don't know anything about him, so how am I supposed to know if he's good for Lun Lun or not, you know? Right. It's just, like, her first crush, and she's 12, so it's like, girl, there's no way this is going to be your best option. Right. But it's interesting because we don't know what's going on. And also, he's giving these flowers that have meaning related to the context of the series, which, if you think about it, would imply that he is aware of what Lun Lun is doing all the time. Not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It gives me a little bit tuxedo mask vibes, not to compare everything to Sailor Moon, but... <laughs> sure, sure. He has a way of showing up at kind of opportune moments and then doing the bare minimum of what would be helpful and then disappearing, which I do think becomes a trope to some extent. And it's not one that I'm deeply opposed to. Yeah, I mean... It yeah. doesn't interrupt the girl power. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Like, he... Because he's around, he doesn't really do anything for the most part. And it becomes almost like a joke where she's like, oh, he's gone again. Like, where did he go? I wanted to talk to him and, like, tell him that, like, I miss him or tell him, like, you know, I was glad to see him. Anything, really. Right. Or learn anything about him. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It was, um, it was interesting. The other major character then to talk about is Toganisha. Yeah, for sure. And did you want to talk about sort of rivals in Magical Girls? Yeah. So, you know, as far as like rivals go, we've only had one other rival before this, which was uh, Non in Megu-chan, who is pretty cool. She's like an equal to Megu, and they kind of have this interesting rivalry slash friendship throughout the series. They're always like, well, I'm going to beat you. No, I'm going to beat you. But like... Whenever one is in trouble, the other one comes to, like, rescue them and stuff. So it's, like, pretty fine. 
Mm. Tobanisha is like a huge bitch in a way that I kind of love. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she feels older than Lunan. There's like a whole thing where by the second half of the series, when she uses her uh, powers, it ages her. She's more witchy to me in a way. And mm-hmm. like, it feels like one of those things where it's like, well, when she uses up her powers, her skin gets all wrinkly and she looks old and you know this is like against the incredibly young Lun Lun it's an interesting choice um (laughs) so I find it like kind of fascinating that she's kind of the villain here but like there are other times where it's kind of like iconic how much she doesn't do anything Uh considering her role (laughs) she's like yelling at Yaboki to do whatever like when they're in Casablanca she's just the whole time she's at the Casablanca hotel and she's like I'm not leaving. There's a pool here. Like, go work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, talking to Yaboki via the radio and stuff. It's kind of fun to see, like, what is she going to do or what isn't she going to do? You know, it's a little silly in a way, I mm-hmm. think. <laughs> and do you enjoy that dynamic? I mean, I think it's interesting because it's different, mm-hmm. right? It feels like more of an evil queen than an equal rival. And, like, Yaboki is the one who's really doing a lot of the work, and we kind of understand him to be more of, like, you know, just, like, the henchman who is kind of a simp and doesn't really, like, whatever his, his own goals are, he's not going to achieve them doing what he's doing. He's going to, he's getting tricked just as much as he's tricking others. Mm-hmm. And he's a good, like, actually active villain for Lun Lun because he's trying to cause social problems for her a lot Mm -hmm. of the time trying to put the people against her while also being a stranger and it's very interesting to see like what his plans are and stuff so i i think the writing was very good for for that uh sometimes it gets a little ridiculous like the time that he entered himself into a dog show as a dog Mm -hmm. um (laughs) Uh which was kind of funny but like in general it's it's kind of interesting to see like what they're gonna do yeah i agree i enjoyed their rivalry i like her (laughs) yeah she's not like inherently evil you know Mm -hmm. she knows when to give up you know there's also no this might sound ridiculous but also maybe not to some people but (laughs) you know sometimes you get these rivalries in anime and manga that are almost uh romantically charged a little and they don't really have that either that's true yeah i would say that's definitely not the case <laughs> from in my opinion yeah 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 i agree yeah because like for example megu and noan you could definitely see yeah. there's you could read there being some subtext there i agree way more than this yeah <laughs> this one not at all it's it feels like they're just like you know in completely different stages in life and stuff and they have different goals and stuff like that i don't know it's it's it it never even crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I would say with known, it feels a little different. It feels more like there's potential there for intense feelings of various kinds. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you want to talk about before we get to the ending? No, let's talk about the ending. Yeah. <laughs> so the ending, I find in general, very, very fascinating. So um, as we mentioned, you know, like, uh, her grandparents are still in in their little town in France. And throughout the series, she's writing letters to them and stuff. There's also an episode where she actually gets to see them because they come up to London. And um, that's very cute. And mm-hmm. even though she's having a lot of fun on her trip and she's meeting all these people and stuff, 
she also really misses them because for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes they are her parents right because they mm-hmm. raised her mm-hmm. the kind of beginning of the end for her is a Emily episode 48 she's in italy if i recall correctly and but she's like on a on an island one of the italian islands and she meets a man who is incredibly eager to um, wish her a happy birthday uh, because she has turned 13. And at first it seems really weird. Like, who is this guy? This like He's like literally a nobleman who has like, taken her to his estate and is giving her everything she could possibly imagine and so on. And at first it seems very strange, but as she gets to know him, she finds out that he was actually in love with her mother and he knew it was her birthday because he celebrates her birthday every year because it's also the anniversary of her mother's death, Mm. which is like, Oh, so intense to think about. Oh my God. (laughs) But you know, it's uh, it's very sweet and everything. And so it's like kind of one of the first times that Lulun actually really gets to talk to someone about her mother because her grandparents are her paternal grandparents. So they know her father more, so, you know, it's a very lovely, uh, a lovely situation there. And, you know, she like gets to talk to him and about how uh, he went so far as to propose to her mother and she left him and gave him the seeds for this tree that's in his uh, still in his yard. And she points out, uh, Lulu points out like the tree's uh, flowers mean um, extravagance or, or luxury. So basically she was saying that she was not interested because he was too rich, <laughs> um, mm. which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like all of that stuff seems to prompt her to really start to think about how she wants to kind of connect more to her family. And maybe she's starting to get ready to go home when she finds out that her grandfather is sick. He collapsed in any case. Uh, in episode 49, she starts to rush home, and her, her grandfather's okay now, but, you know, mm. the news was still enough that she made it all the way home, finally. I do wish that we knew where in France they lived, but anyway, she goes home. Yes, yeah, so she goes home, and her grandparents run a flower shop, so they know their way around flowers, and it's then that she finds out that there is this huge field of all kinds of flowers And when she asks her grandfather about it, he explains that everyone that she has uh, touched, you know, like throughout her journey has been sending home these seeds from the flowers they've been cultivating that were, of course, the seeds that Sarah had been giving everyone. And he had been planting all of them and growing them all together. And it's like this really incredibly gorgeous thing. So it's like, imagine this, this field full of every flower you could imagine. And... It's, it's very heartfelt and everything, and Lulun is thinking about how she wants to stay at home because she doesn't really, like, she cares about her grandparents more than this journey. And, of course, Yaboki and Toganisha overhear this conversation because they are also always following her. And so Toganisha and her, her fury that Lulun could be like this decides to go out and trample the flowers in this field. And when Lulun goes to stop her... Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the flowers do get trampled, but among the flowers, they find the rainbow flower, which had sprouted basically through the cross-pollination of all these flowers from all these people whose lives Mm -hmm. Lulun had touched, which was such a lovely way to kind of end the series, I think. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, actually, I feel like what we're about to describe that happens after this mm-hmm. is not nearly as interesting as this moment of the plot coming together and it being like, 
all the friends we made along the way. You yeah. Are present in our garden and pointed us to the answer. I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such a beautiful idea of like, you know, she felt for so long that she was wasting her time going through all these places to try to find this flower, but she needed to go through that journey in order to basically create the flower. Yes. There's like this constant thing about how, you know, fairies used to live on Earth, but the greed of humanity caused them to leave and go to their own world. And it's the only through the kindness of girls like Lun Lun that there's still some essence of like fairies left on earth yeah i would say that the writers of the show overall struggle with deus ex machina like (laughs) the midway point feels a little like that and Uh i think the very end feels a little like that but this is not like this is a very good wrap-up of the plot yes i agree Um, it was really nice because it could feel very frustrating at times watching this show, like, oh, another fake flower again or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, oh, no, it's all worth it because it all ended up leading to this. So with that, you know, it's just like, it's so beautiful. And that means that now that she's found the flower, for one thing, when Toganisha tries to steal the flower, she tries to use her her usual, you know, mm-hmm. pollen storm on her. And the flower reflects it back against her and sends her away instead. So that's fun. That's taken care of. Nouveau and Kato appear to her in human form. Well, I should say humanoid form. It's really a fairy form. This is when I found out that Kato was a boy because I thought that Kato was a girl literally the whole show. Mm -hmm, Me too. I was like, wait, what? Kato has like a very childlike cat voice. How are you supposed to gender that? It's fine. I mean, the idea that Kato is a male character mm-hmm. is cool in the sense that I think it means that he's a very feminine male character. That's true. Whether that's sort of because of age or what, like it's <laughs> that surprise is cool. It, it means that he's not being gendered in the exact same way as other male characters. Sure. That's a good point. Yeah. And he's cute as a sprite. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty adorable. It's kind of fun to see like their, their human form. I, I didn't know that was coming and it was a lovely surprise. And yeah, there's like this rainbow that shows up with this uh, you know horse, horse-drawn carriage. I love the carriage. This part also really reminded me of Ojemajo Doremi, ah. which is the final Majoko series. I know officially it is classified as a Majoko series by Toei Animation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting. I don't know if it was an intentional hearkening back to that, but certainly the connections feel possible. But yeah, so then the final episode is Lunlun going to the fairy world and getting kind of all the the loose ends tied up here. (laughs) And it gets a little, it's interesting. (laughs) It's kind of random. It's a weird last episode. I will say I like a lot of the design elements. like, Mm -hmm. Like I said, the carriage and the winged horses and the rainbow bridge and Mm. the animals are now fairies and like that's all cool but the narrative here is pretty it's not it's not terribly satisfying to me and it's a little like suddenly we're watching a different show for a minute that's true yeah i think it's interesting because it's like one of those things where i try to keep in mind like the outside of the actual show narrative and vibes, and this is especially for Magical Girl series for kids, especially something like this that is so uh, lengthy, 
I think it's a very important aspect of like, yeah, when you remember that like these adventures are are once a week or whatever, and you know there's the imagery that comes from the opening and endings that they're giving you that like mm-hmm. are giving you this extra context that's not in the actual story. Yeah, it does feel like a completely different thing, and it's like I wanted to see more if possible (laughs) you know it's like oh the fairy world i love fairies but we literally Mm -hmm. only see it for one episode right i think i would pick more or less fair the amount that we get of the fairy world is a strange dose yeah do you feel like it would have been a fine show if it had ended with lulun going to the fairy world and you not knowing what happened after (laughs) well kind of i mean i think like all the friends we made along the way sent us flowers. They're all in our garden. We found the flower of seven colors. And I can't remember when they say this for the first time. I remember it from, I think, episode 49. But I think possibly say they say it towards the beginning. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea that once she finds the flower, they might honor her by making her an ambassador. Right. And I kind of love that idea that... Like, first of all, you know, I'm a person who is interested in different parts of the world and moving around to different parts of the world. And the idea that maybe the ultimate honor would be to be an ambassador who does that as your kind of adult profession, I think is kind of cool. But in fact, what happens is that suddenly we start talking about her being royalty, Mm. which she's 13 it never seems to have been her dream. We don't hear her saying like, oh, I wish I was royalty. Right. And it's based around marriage yeah. one way or another, which is not, I don't know. It yeah. just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So um, just for, for anyone who has not had the the confusion of watching this episode. Um, so episode <laughs> 50 you know, we we get to see the fairy world. It's very exciting. It's for the most part kind of looks like your typical place, but people are wearing slightly more old fashioned clothing and everyone has fairy wings. And, you know, it's it's cute. It's fun. I, I enjoy this aspect because I like fairy stories. But yeah. yeah, so she presents the flower and it's very exciting. And the king talks about how now as a reward she can marry his son and she's like i'm sorry what like she's shocked everyone else is like this is great but she's totally confused and also she's like but i like someone i don't want to just marry some boy i just met like she only sees this one boy uh sitting by the throne and she doesn't understand what's going on and she's so upset like oh my god because i'm in love with someone else which is very funny because again she's 13 but it's already so much and they're like okay you're just recently turned 13 we're gonna have you marry off this prince so you can become a princess isn't this like your dream or whatever and we know her to be a tomboy so that also kind of strengthens like she's probably not super enthused about the idea generally speaking even if she had liked the prince like that wouldn't necessarily be a thing That being right. said, a certain Serge does show up at this point, and she's like, what the heck are you doing here? This is the fairy world. And he's like, oh, well, actually, I'm one of the princes. I'm actually the one in line for the throne. So it becomes, oh, if she stays, she can marry Serge, who she barely knows, but she thinks she's in love with. Right, right. Right. She thinks this is a better option, but it still <laughs> doesn't feel like a good option to me. Right. 
So now I do find it very interesting because she's thinking about it and she spends the night there in the in the fairy world and like they're talking about how Serge's coronation is going to be later so like he's about to become the new king and it's very exciting etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know Lulun is able to open up to him and be like listen I don't want this I want to go back home I want to hang out with my grandparents I've been gone from them for a whole year I miss everyone so Serge is like thank you for you know sharing this information it's actually quite a beautiful conversation all things considered mm -hmm. so in the end I do think age aside Serge is, seems to be a good guy yeah <laughs> yeah that's right. it could yeah. be a lot worse mm-hmm they, they listen to each other and about their feelings, etc. And so she is getting ready. They give her a, a dress that looks very bridal. And uh -huh. they go to the coronation. And it's there that the king announces the new king is Serge's younger brother. And everyone is shocked, <laughs> including including uh, Lunun. Um, but like everyone in the, the whole kingdom is shocked. And Serge explains to everyone that it, this is his own act of selfishness that he cannot take the crown because he wants to go back to Earth with Lun Lun. And it's like, I think it could be worse. This ending could be a lot worse. No, I agree. I, agree. <laughs> I think that considering the, the topic, it's probably maybe the best that the ending could have been because they go back to Earth. They don't get married. Yeah, yet. they don't get married because she is 13. And I guess if it's been a whole year, he must be 18 He's now. 18. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> like, no. Well, it's it's a lot. But in any case, so, you know, it's like, okay, so she can go back to living her, her life and, and doing whatever she was planning to do now that she was back home. But, like, they would be together romantically at the very least, maybe. Like, even that's not inherently clear, but, like, he wants to be in her life, basically. Right. So I mean, he could have chosen to stay in the fairy world and yeah. visit, right? But, right. you know. But, yeah, he I'll goes down it. with her, yeah. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, again, like, the situation was already really wild, but they did the best they could with it, I feel like. Yeah, and I can appreciate yeah. that it's hard to write an ending. You know, true, true. I don't know that I could have done better personally, but <laughs> it's not my favorite episode. Yeah, it's a it's a lot, um, but it's also it's interesting. Like the way that it turned out was interesting because they could have made it like her being like, "Oh, wonderful! I'm gonna be a 13 year old princess in the fairy world," but that yeah. would be out of character for her. So I'm really glad that, like, she was able to express herself uh, openly to this guy she liked, again, that we don't know anything about, <laughs> mm -hmm. and everything. So I do feel like that was a good aspect, at the very least. Like, it felt like a very mature conversation and mature result. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they didn't have to end up together at all. That could have also been an option. But, you know, all things considered, with the way that they started that episode, it, it ended okay. No, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. So, so yeah. And I should also point out that uh, in this episode, we do see Fairy Toganisha and Yaboki. And they're both like, well, I guess we lost. So it's it's off to, to do something else. Uh, maybe we'll go back down to Earth. Like, it's like she just very cleanly gives up in, a, in an interesting way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It could be more satisfying as an ending, but it could be less. I think it's fine. Yeah. It is kind of like 
she has learned so much about Europe. She, I think, has developed a love of Europe beyond just her immediate home and of people from all over Europe. And mm -hmm. so the idea that she's like, yeah, I'll stay on Earth in Europe where I have been this entire time and spent my entire life, like, makes sense. Exactly. So, yeah, everything seems to work out just fine. So it's like, it's it's an ending. Okay. Yeah, it's an ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about regarding the series? Well, I guess I just want to return one more time to this overall thing of Europe as mm -hmm. the topic. And, yeah. you know, obviously we covered like when she goes to North Africa or when she's meeting people of color in Europe, it kind of brings into striking relief how much the show is kind of holding up a certain kind of white culture as like a very important and notable culture in the world. And, you know, obviously I don't think that's wrong, but I do think that it's important to pay attention to what that, you know, says about how important other people's culture is. And, you know, we touched on some examples, but I think that the episode about Columbus is a good example that kind of highlights that too. So, you know, at one point in the Spanish arc, kind of the second arc after she leaves France, we get this whole episode about Columbus that presents just like a totally... I don't know, I guess I'd say like unexamined narrative of like, well, Columbus was this great guy who just wanted to explore and discovered the Americas. Yeah. And it's not shocking that they weren't like deeply questioning the stories that we have been handed down about Columbus, right? I'm not like surprised by that, but I do think that it's worth saying that this show presents a fairly simple narrative about Europe that that is, I think, implicated in bigger global racial politics about, like, who is quaint, who is cute, like, what cultures are worth paying attention to and which ones are less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't, like, ruin the show for me. I love this show. And I, I love actually even just having the opportunity to think through that and in particular to think through it from a Japanese perspective um, and how people who are not European think about France or the Netherlands or the UK or Italy. But I do think it's it's worth pointing out in our discussion, right? Like the ways yeah. that that takes place. And I think for me, as a Mexican-American, thinking about Columbus, it's like... Mm, I don't think he was such a great guy. I don't think that's correct, right? It's a weird right. question. Yeah, obviously, I think that most people have learned the sugar-coated story of Columbus in school, regardless of, of where you grew up. It's pretty much always the case in within the educational system. He's painted in a mostly positive light, and there's still the discussion of changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day in the U.S., which has not been... Uh, nationwide yet from my understanding so right it's state to state and yeah. the federal government still calls it columbus day yeah so it's not great i would say if you don't know the extent to how terrible he was a good primer is the behind the bastards episode about him that that actually was relatively recent 
I thought I knew everything about how terrible he was, but I did not actually. Oh, there's so, so much to know. Yeah, there's so much to know. <laughs> there's so much. Um, so, so yeah, it's good to know. Like, it's good to unlearn the the stuff that that seems really sweet. And so, I don't blame Lun Lun for saying she wants to be no, the girl Columbus. It's it sounds hilarious. <laughs> it's like, oh no, please! But you know, she doesn't know. She's she's a twelve year old in the seventies. You know, right. It's not great, but it's up to the the viewer to learn better, I guess. Like, we just gotta, you know, be aware. And what about for you as a, you know, a person living in Japan, a mixed race person, like looking at the racial politics of this, do you feel similar to me? Hmm, I think so. I, I feel like the connections, especially because I am, you know, half white uh, and Japanese mm-hmm. specifically, I feel very hyper aware of how much that is uh, the the kind of default Candy Candy itself as a franchise. When they did like live action things and so on, they they were always casting half white, half Japanese girls to play Candy, which is mm. interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, something I I learned via learning about a half Japanese actor who was in the seventies Comet, actually, which was a, a fun connection. But yeah, that's cool. Hmm. So like nothing about this really surprised me as far as like how they're depicted. I was surprised to see non Europeans at all, mm-hmm. and I, I think even the definition of some characters, like like whether they are European or not, is is also another situation that's a whole other conversation of course but sure yeah i guess yeah as as far as like the the whole segment of episodes uh, in morocco and egypt etc like that was surprising so i enjoyed that aspect as well like i know that it was incredibly problematic but the fact that it even occurred to them to go there was impressive unfortunately (laughs) yeah 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 well, I would say, too, just one thing that I really noticed on your Twitter that I find really interesting is this idea that comes up from time to time about non-Japanese people being kind of obsessed with Japan, but then not maybe knowing very much about Japan in a way. In particular, maybe some of the things that might be worth critiquing about Japanese society. Every time it comes up, I'm like, oh, yes, I can see that that's definitely true. And I think that... I'm not an expert, but I think you could even kind of say like a certain type of Japanese fetishization of European culture is probably in that category a little bit of being something that is worth questioning. Yeah, I think for me, yeah, it's it's definitely there. It's definitely a thing that, it again, this is like not the time or place to go into it, but there is like a history there with uh, in terms of the direct trade between European countries and Japan in the past, mm-hmm. and then the soft power aspect. Like, there's a lot of stuff we don't have time for uh, here, but sure, sure, it is, sure. you know, it is definitely a thing for sure that this is just emblematic of, really. Right. So, so yeah. 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 <laughs> so, I think that's everything that we have to talk about, which means we can get to the final question, which is, um, yeah, what do you hope to see in the future of the magical girl genre? Oh, yeah, I saw that you put this question. And it's funny for me, because in a way, I'm not so interested in the future of our genre. I'm so fixated on the past, right? Like, yeah. I'm so 
interested in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But I think that what even just like our tail end of that that last bit of discussion about sort of global cultures brings up is that I hope, and I think we're seeing this, but I hope to continue to see more magical girls from different parts of the world, um, representing different parts of the world. And yeah, I don't know, bringing in different cultures that maybe we haven't seen in the genre on the creative side or on the sort of depiction side in the future. I think that's fun. I definitely have watched more uh, some a few of the Korean and Chinese shows lately, and I hope we continue to see more of that. Um, I also wanted to say to you, and I think this will apply to some of your listeners, that one thing that I discovered through this process was Perrine. Um, mm-hmm. So, have you ever watched it? I haven't. No. Okay. Well, I I hadn't either, and I wanted to dip into it just a little bit to give myself a little context. Um, because besides Anne of Green Gables and Heidi, it appeared to be the other kind of main early um, world masterpiece theater series that was centered on a female character. And one thing that I discovered that I thought was so fascinating for me as a biracial person is that it it, it does center on a um, biracial main character mm-hmm. who is part Indian, part European. So one thing that this process of digging into Loon Loon um, revealed to me was that I'm really interested to go back and dig into that series more um, mm-hmm. and maybe even read the novel that it's based on. I, I've read just a little bit online and it, it got me excited. So that's kind of a next step direction for me. Yeah, I think that mixed representation is more present than people generally assume. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that's especially the case with Japanese media. There's this image that, like, well, Japanese stories are for Japanese people, and so, like, they're not going to include XYZ people. But it's like, if you go back in time, you'll see, like, Mm -hmm. there were periods where there was a lot of representation or at least attempts at it. And so I think it's, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I definitely think that the lens that you bring as a, um, mixed Nikkei person really enriches all of the content that you put out. So I thought that I would make that recommendation to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I said, it's a bit top here. I, to be honest, I have actually not watched any world masterpiece theater, but I want to very bad. And yeah, I just, um, that would be an ideal podcast, but I need someone to be my co-host. I can't do it by myself. So that's, mm. uh, and also I need time and money, but that's a whole other problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's also, yeah. 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 But yeah. So I guess that's, yeah, everything we have to talk about. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It really is such an honor to be on here um, every time you invite me. I had so much fun digging into this and doing the research and getting ready. And I hope that folks enjoyed the episode and that it leads more people to know about Loon Loon. Yeah. So where can people find you and follow you online to talk about Loon Loon and other older magical girls? (laughs) Great. Well, I would say that the platform I'm most active on is Instagram. My name is at JCHQ underscore. Um, and then I tweet about magical girls and other media that I'm watching at jchq.media. 
If you are curious about the Twitter associated with my professional life as an LGBTQ activist, that is JCHQ59 on Twitter. And I also have been a little absent from the Sparkleside chat Discord, but definitely um, ahead of this episode dropping, I'm going to get back in there in case we <laughs> get into some fun conversations about this show. So look for me there. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you again for coming on and I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. <laughs> Whether this was your first or last time listening, thank you so much for checking out this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. We hope you check out the rest of our chats, over two years of magical content and counting. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or tell five friends or tell the whole world by talking about us online. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag SparkleSideChats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U, and you can find me at Ayushinos, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at SparkleSideChats at gmail.com. Did you know we also take recommendations for future guests and topics? Just fill out the form in the show notes. You can even suggest yourself if you're so bold. The very best free way to support the podcast is using your podcast platform to give a rating and review of our little show. This gives the big internet machines the message that they should share it with more people, and I think we all want that, don't we? You can also join the Discord server for this podcast to talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. The forever link is in the show notes as well as on the socials, so be sure to stop by. Show notes can be found on your podcast platform of choice or at our main landing page at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. If you have a few bucks, you can give a one-time donation at ko-fi.com or ko-fi.com slash ayushinos. You can also commit to a monthly membership, which grants you access to bonus episodes about Magical Girls and adjacent content such as movies, comics, and other series that Magical Girl fans tend to also love. All it takes is $5 a month, but if you want to rank up, that'll give you discounts on art commissions and monthly requests as well. Music credits, as always, are also in the show notes. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at a few bruises. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you are magical forever and always. See you next time. <laughs>